Our scripture reading this morning is from Colossians chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 1 through 11. If you have a copy of the Bible that's on the stands in the back, that's on page 984. So Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, and underlying this passage is the great doctrine of, the, of our union with Jesus Christ. As we go through this, you will note that um, the Apostle Paul tells us to, um, uh, talks about the Old South and the New South, and um, you will note that he doesn't really tell us to put off the Old South and put on the New South. He tells us that the Old South has been put off and the New South has been put on. So as we read this passage, um, follow along and uh, engage your mind as we think about the blessings that we have, the, the great wondrous mystery, in fact, it is to have been united with Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. May the Lord honor the reading of his word. Well, if you're guests with us this morning, welcome. Um, we're back in Colossians after about a month off. Uh, back in August, we started through the letter of Colossians written by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we took a little break in October. And now we're back uh, picking up with chapter 3. C.S. Lewis, in his famous book, Mere Christianity, perhaps you've heard of it. If you haven't, you should, have heard, you should hear of it. And if you haven't read it, you should take some time to read that book. Um, writes the following in his book. It says, We must try by every medical, educational, economic, and political means in our power to produce a world where as many people as possible grow up Nice, just as we must try to produce a world where all have plenty to eat. But we must not suppose that even if we succeed in making everyone nice, we should have saved their souls. A world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world, and might even be more difficult to save. He continues, for mere improvement is not redemption, though redemption always improves people, even here and now, and will in the end improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Christianity is not after niceness. Christianity is after newness. And Paul's concern in this particular passage of scripture is that we remember that. This passage is something of a turning point in the letter. Paul has urged his readers up to this point to keep walking in the gospel they had initially received and to go on trusting in the sufficiency of of Jesus Christ, 
over against the false gospels of legalism and mysticism and asceticism, whose erroneous teaching ironically strengthens rather than subdues our sinful nature. And in contrast to all this futility that Paul's been talking about, he now paints a vivid portrait of human beings renewed, a new way to be human, people who have been transformed through their union with the risen, exalted, and returning Christ. Paul has a single call here in this section of Scripture. He makes a rousing call to single-minded devotion to Jesus Christ, the Lord of creation and new creation, and urges upon us the moral and ethical realization of that union that we have with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. His teaching can be summarized in three basic responsibilities. If we are going to grow into who we are made to be in Christ, we have three responsibilities. Heavenly preoccupation, earthly mortification, and godly restoration. That's what we're after. That's what Paul's after. That's what the Spirit is after in this text of Scripture, and that's where we are going this morning. Jesus is coming again to set up his kingdom on earth in its fullest, most realized sense. And we are called to live here, brothers and sisters, here and now, like we will live there and then. That's so important for us to understand the ethics that the New Testament talks about. We are already in the kingdom of God if we're believers in Jesus Christ. And that kingdom is coming in its fullness when Christ returns again. However, in the meantime, we're called to live here and now the way we will live there and then. We define ourselves now in our behavior and our conduct kingdom down, not culture up. We don't look to the culture to determine how we're supposed to live, even the church culture. We look to the scriptures and we look to how we're called to conduct ourselves in light of the kingdom that is coming and that we have received. A change in citizenship necessitates a change in conduct. A change in citizenship necessitates a change in conduct. That's what Paul is teaching here. We are once citizens of the devil's kingdom, of Satan under his rule and authority. We've been transferred, delivered, redeemed out of that kingdom to be under the kingship of Jesus. And that means we will now change our conduct in light of our new king. So how do we get there? Number one, we get there, first of all, with heavenly, heavenly preoccupation. And that's why Paul says in the first four verses to set our minds on things above. Let's read those verses, the first two again. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. So Paul's command here is to set the gaze of our souls to be so steadfastly and intently focused on Christ that knowing him, knowing him becomes the center of our desires. It becomes the core of our commitments. It becomes the heart of our ambition. And it becomes the deepest and most consuming passion of our lives. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not there yet. We're not there yet. I mean, who would look past over their last week and say, yes, my last week was consumed with steadfastly and intently focusing on keeping Christ at the center of my desires, pleasing him at the core of my commitments, becoming like him as the primary ambition of my life, and bringing glory to him as my deepest and all-consuming passion. That's kingdom living. That's what you were bought for. That's what I was bought for, was to live that sort of focused, intent life on Jesus Christ. Now, there is a caution here, lest we fall prey to the things we talked about back in chapter 2, a month or so ago. When Paul says that we're to set our minds on things above, when we're to seek the things that are above, he's not teaching that we neglect earthly responsibilities or that we become indifferent to the things that God has given us to do and fall into the very asceticism he warned about in chapter 2. The things of earth that he's referring to is 
not the good aspects of God creation, God's creation, like food and drink or certain material things, but it's the bad aspects of our fallen nature that still live inside of us. It's the remaining sin that lives in us. That's why he writes in verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you. The things of earth are not primarily those good aspects of God's creation that we are called to enjoy and glorify him in and through, but rather the remaining sin that lives within us and the ways that we can capitulate to that by setting our minds on those sorts of things and living in accord with those sorts of things. See, the reason why we have to make war on our remaining sin is because that's not who we are anymore as believers in Christ. Notice the adjectives and the way that Paul describes the way we are right now as Christians. He says, we have been, verse 1, raised with Christ. Verse 3, you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. See, he says, past, you've already been raised with Christ, present, you are secure and hidden and safe in him, and future, you will appear with him. Chapter 1 reminded us of lots of glorious truths. We are qualified already to share by virtue of the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, to share in the inheritance of the saints. We have been delivered out of the domain of darkness. We've been transferred into the kingdom of God's Son. We have been forgiven of all of our sins. We have been reconciled where once we were alienated and hostile and doing evil deeds. We have been made alive. Our debt has been canceled. The principalities and powers and their rule over us have been completely disarmed. I mean, this is gospel hope. This is good news. This is reality. This is who we are. And this is what we are to preoccupy ourselves with. These are the sorts of things that are to fill our minds and fill our hearts and fill our souls on a daily basis. I'm qualified. I'm delivered. I'm transferred. I'm redeemed. I belong to Jesus. I'm made alive. I'm his. And that orientation frees us from the power and presence of sin. So the first step in Christian living is learning to live out of your new identity, the true, essential, real you. This means letting your life be shaped by Christ's past and Christ's future, not yours. And it means letting what is true of him be functionally true for you, because it is. His history is your history. His future is your, his, your future. His obedience is your obedience. His death is your death. His resurrection is your resurrection. Live like it. That's what Paul says. Live like it. His sin-bearing death absolved your judgment, freed you from the power of sin. Don't you dare give yourself to what he died to free you from. His resurrection raised you to new life. We must count all these things to be true because here is the point. Our status before Christ determines our walk with Christ. Our status before Christ is what shapes our walk in Christ. You know, if all you ever hear about fighting sin and becoming a new person in Christ is a just say no campaign, you're not going to get very far. We are not intended to fight against the incredibly powerful allure of sin. You know why you still sin? You know why I still sin? Because we like it. It feels good. It's pleasurable. That's why we sin. So the way that you have to counter sin is not with a just say no campaign, just buck up, just fight, you know, God says no to that. It's rather to replace that vision of what that sin is offering you with a superior vision. And Paul lays out the superior vision here in the first four verses. The only way to defeat the power of sin's promise of pleasure is by faith in God's promise of superior pleasure. The ability to resist the indulgence of the flesh does not come from rigorous asceticism or self-restraint, but from a mind that's been captivated and controlled by the beauty and majesty of the risen Lord Jesus. You know why we don't live this way? You know why I struggle to live 
this way and to, I mean, knowing, counting these things to be true and functioning in accord with them. You know why? Because I don't have hope and you don't have hope. You say, wait, hold on. I have hope. I'm not depressed. I'm generally, I'm not talking about a hope. I'm not talking about optimism. I'm not talking about a, a, you know, just kind of a good life. I'm talking about where you're setting your ultimate hope. We have a hope problem in the church, I think, really. Not just our church. I think there's a hope problem in the church. And what I mean is I think much of the apathy and immaturity of Christians today stems from a lack of hope. Hope doesn't shape our theology and life enough. Our minds remain caught up with things here because, because they aren't being caught up with things there. Because our, our hope is here, not there. Maybe it's because we think our heavenly hope is only possible or even probable and it's not assured. But Paul bends over backwards in this very letter, Colossians chapter 1, verse 6. He reminds the Colossian Christians at the very beginning, there is a hope that's laid up for you in heaven. And this hope is being unpacked right here in verses 1 through 4. And why does he remind them of that? Because it's necessary to convince ourselves of this truth because we seldom get excited about something we aren't convinced is really going to happen. But the more we as Christians convince our hearts that the treasure in heaven is truly ours, the more this hope will shape, mold, and impact our living. Here's why. Hope forms. Hope shapes. It possesses a gravitational pull beckoning us to live by faith in Christ and to love him more fully. I want you to see this in Colossians chapter 1, the power of hope to transform people. Look back at chapter 1 and look at verses 4 through 6. Paul's thanking God for the Colossians and what's happened in them through the preaching of the gospel. And he says in verse 4, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, sounds like they've been transformed. What transformed them? Verse 6, Because, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Do you see that? You see the logic? He's saying their faith and their, their faith in Christ and the love that started abounding from their lives, this godliness that started flowing from them, where'd it come from? It came from hope. It came from having a hope in heaven. And this is how the gospel began increasing and bearing fruit in their lives. Because hope causes faith and love to happen. It's life-changing, brothers and sisters, when we begin to understand the impact of hope. It is laid up for you. You have, your future is so incredibly bright, brother and sister. It is so incredibly wonderful, and it's secure. And you don't have to earn it. Jesus bought it for you. You get to live in light of it, rest in it, work from it, live into it. It's secure. It's definite. It's under the protection of God. No one's going to take it from you. No one can diminish it. Nobody can destroy it. Nothing is more secure than verses 1 through 4 for you as a believer in Christ. So think often about heaven. Let hope impact you. The mind that contemplates little, the hope of heaven, will be shaped little by the kingdom of heaven. If you don't think about heaven, you'll live earthly. The more we believe this truth, the more it shapes our affections, pursuits, peace, love, and faith. And the reason why we don't preoccupy ourselves there is because we, we function here. And we're supposed to actually not view heaven as a finishing line of this life, but rather something different. See, we tend to think of this life's the meal, heaven's the dessert. That's not right. Heaven is the meal. Heaven is the meal. And this life's enjoyments are appetizers. It's not meal, then dessert. It's appetizer and meal. Do you glut yourself on appetizers? If you know a meal is coming, a really good meal, I'm not going to fill up on chips. I got a steak. 
I'm not going to waste my energy on that. I'm not going to invest all my heart. It's like, man, walking by, man, you're going after those ships. You ever had a meal in your life? No, I mean, enjoy the appetizer, but don't live for it. Don't stick your face in it. Don't eat it up like it's the last food you've ever seen in your life. Can I have some more, please? More chips? More crackers? When we've got, you can imagine the waiter. So contemplate heaven often and watch it shape your life. I dare you. I dare you. So that's the first point. Heavenly, heavenly, heavenly preoccupation is what we're meant to have to shape us. And hope is what drives it. Number two, earthly mortification. Earthly mortification. Here's the reality. We have fullness in Christ. We're qualified. We're transferred. We're redeemed. We're forgiven. But we still have filthiness. We're full in Christ. We're filthy in ourselves. We still have filthiness within. And here's what happened. Jesus died for your sin so you could put your sin to death. Jesus died for your sin so you could put your sin to death. Two questions. What must we put to death? And why must we put it to death? All right, so look at verse 5. Paul says, in contemplating this, who we are, being raised with Christ, seated with him, dying with him, rising with him, hidden in him, will appear with him. If all that's true, put to death. Therefore, whatever is earthly in you. And he divides it into two categories. Sexual sin and social sin. Sexual sin and social sin. Now, by saying what is earthly in you, just to, re- re- just to state it again, he doesn't mean put to death your physical body, like go and jump off a bridge. It's what is earthly inside of you, the desires and compulsions of the body that lead to sinful actions that are produced by the body. He says that if, if you are in Christ, if you've been raised, if you've been seated with him, if you're hidden with him, if he is your all, if he is your life, then put to, de- put to death whatever's contrary to him. So, let's look at some of these. Sexual sin. He summarizes it in lots of different words here in verse 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. I think he's referring to sexual sin exclusively right here. I don't think, I think he's talking about covetousness in light of sexual sin. Coveting another person's wife, girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever. Something that's not yours that you desire sexually that doesn't belong to you. Now, he gives lots of different uh, descriptions here. Sexual immorality, that word pornaya, same word we get pornography from. Impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, all that is idolatry. It's idolatry. We don't tend to think of our sin in idolatrous terms. It's It's a false god. It's antichrist. And we're worshiping antichrist when we give ourselves to these sorts of things. The biblical sexual vision is chastity before marriage and fidelity in marriage. Anything outside of that is in this list. And we need to put it to death. If you're not married, the biblical call is chastity. If you are married, the biblical call is fidelity to your spouse. And anything that's outside of that is to be put to death according to this list. We also have social sin. Verse 8, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. So all this social sin, all of this sort of gossip and slander and malice and obscene talk and all this, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But those are the two categories that we're to put to death. Now, here's the question, why? Why? Why, What is the reason Paul gives for why we ought to put these things to death? Well, there's the positive reason and there's the negative reason. The positive reason is this isn't who you are anymore. You've you've been raised with Christ. You're buried with Christ. You're hidden with Christ. You're alive to Christ. You're forgiven. All that stuff we've rehearsed again and again in this sermon, all those things that are true of us, that's the positive reason. There's also a negative reason. If the positive won't motivate you, the negative should. The wrath of God is coming. You see this in verse 7? Or actually verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. There's the negative motivation. Verse 8, or verse 7, is the positive motivation. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. 
So the positive is that's not who you are anymore, verse 8. The negative is verse 7. Now, the wrath of God is not a popular subject to talk about. It just isn't. It is not a popular subject. It's all over the Bible. It's repeated throughout Scripture over and over again. It, the wrath of God is God's settled, determined desire and ability to punish all sin according to what it deserves. I mean, we don't understand wrath like that typically. So we typically think of it as capricious or God having a temper tantrum or just you know getting upset with people and just duck, duck, damn, and that's it. That's you. That's not it. That's not the vision. The wrath of God is coming. Now, in a sense, it's already here in a passive form as God gives people over to sin and doesn't intervene in their lives. That's a passive form of his wrath. But the active form of wrath is what's coming when he, Christ returns again. According to 1 Thessalonians, where he will punish the wicked and save all those who have been waiting for him, which are his people. Now, the culture doesn't believe this. I mean, we can blow the whistle all day long. It's like they're living on the train tracks and they don't think the train is coming. You just say, get off the tracks, get off the tracks. Train's coming, get off the tracks. Oh, man, it's fun to play on the train tracks. Get off the tracks. Train's coming. Get off the tracks. That's what I'm saying to you younger people here this morning. If you are not in Christ this morning, listen to me. As a pastor, one of your pastors, all three of us love you dearly. But I got the mouthpiece this morning speaking for all of us. You need to come to Jesus Christ. The wrath of God is coming for you. You don't believe it because it's like you're living on the train tracks and you don't hear a whistle. You're playing on the train tracks, the rocks, throwing the rocks, and all that stuff. It's all fun. But your parents and your pastors and loving Christians and your teachers who care about you are saying, get off the tracks. Get off the tracks. Come to Jesus Christ. Repent of sin. Get off the tracks. Because the train is coming, and you will hear the whistle, but you'll be too deaf to hear it, and it's going to plow you over. The world doesn't believe it's on the tracks. And some of you don't believe you're on the tracks. And if you're outside of, the, of Christ this morning, I'm telling you, you're on the tracks and you need to get off the tracks. I love you. I love you. I love you. But I want to warn you because that's what love would do in this situation. If you don't know Jesus, you're not getting away with anything. You're storing up everything for the day of God's wrath. If you don't know Jesus, you're not getting away with anything. You're storing up everything. And that there's good news for you. And that is, if you will turn from your sin and you will embrace Jesus by faith and say, he's my Savior, he's who I want. I don't want to face the wrath of God. I want to face, I want to embrace the love of God for me as manifest in Jesus, the gift of God for me. And I believe him and I rest on him. And I give my sin to him, and I want him to change my life, and I want to live under his lordship for the rest of my life. If you do that, you're in the kingdom. You're in the kingdom. No wrath for you. No condemnation for you. Only life and joy and peace everlasting. So come to Christ this morning. Here's the reality. Sin is always serious. The vices that are mentioned in this list are the sort of things that the culture laughs about and makes fun of Christians for. But these are the sort of things that keep people out of the kingdom of God. We coddle these sins in ourselves and in others, and we do so at our great peril. This Greek word put to death literally comes from the word in which, from which we get necrosis. You know what necrosis is? Left untreated, a bite from a brown recluse spider can lead to necrosis which is the, that certain cells get injured and they die in your body and they progressively kill you. And that's the way our sin is. We have one choice in our sin. Fight it or die. There's no peace here. We fight it. Think in terms of a man that's working on a massive machine. I mean, I'm sorry to keep using kind of grotesque illustrations. We've seen a number of them this morning. But this is, this is God's will and word to us, and we have to describe it. So think in terms of a man working on a massive machine who suddenly finds his left hand snatched up into gears and dragged in. No getting it out. No getting it out. You know, he has two choices. 
In only a moment, his entire body will be crushed unless he takes drastic steps to prevent it. So without hesitation, he grabs an axe and he hacks off his hand at the wrist. It's a graphic and it's an unpleasant picture, but it's the only alternative to death. And it's the picture that God is giving us in this text for our sin. Hack the hand off. I mean, it's it's the illustration Jesus used in Matthew 5. If your right eye causes you to sin, cut it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Put it to death. Sin is not a pet that we bring out and walk several times a week. It's a lion. It's a wolf. It's a bear. It bites and hunts at will. It attacks as a piranha. It is restless evil ablaze by the fires of hell. Do you think of your slander and gossip that way? That's how James thinks of it. The fire of hell being ignited in your mouth. Sin cannot be trained. It cannot be bridled. It cannot be domesticated. It cannot be rescued. It cannot be rehabilitated. Sin will never wear a collar, stick it to its kennel, or cease clawing at your throat. If you have a pet sin, and it's in the sexual or social realm, you have to put it to death. Renounce it at once. Your salvation depends on it. Why do I say that? Pastor Mark, don't you believe in once saved, always saved? You just told us. We're qualified. We're forgiven. We're rescued. We're redeemed. Are you taking the gospel away from us? No. I'm saying that's how gospel people live. Qualified, redeemed, restored, forgiven people fight sin. People who coast are not Christians. They're not Christians. At least they don't have any warrant for claiming so. We don't get to heaven, brothers and sisters, unless we have a long line of sin carcasses behind us that we have fought and tried to kill. This is why we are told in Philippians chapter 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will. Why the fear and trembling? Because it's a serious game. We're not playing around here. I thought we were, didn't we just come off a five sola series where we preach the wonderful doctrines of grace alone? Not by works, not by merit, by grace. Faith alone. You're justified apart from works of the law. Christ alone. He's it. That's true. But the reformers also said, and Luther took pains to tell us that you're justified through faith alone, but not a faith that remains alone. You are justified through faith alone, but your final salvation comes through justification and sanctification. That's not works. We're talking about foundation and fruit here. Let me give you a text, unless you think I'm preaching heresy. Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue peace and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Do you get that? He chose you to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. That's ultimate final salvation. Now, sanctification is not perfection. We know that. As I've said again and again from this pulpit, sanctification is not perfection, it's direction. It's direction. You're not expected to get rid of every single sin. You're going to die with thousands of sins. I mean, we're going to die with so much remaining sin and filthiness in us that Jesus is going to purge from us, and that's why glorification is going to be so incredibly sweet. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. So don't hear me preaching, you know, that you have to be perfectly sanctified or perfectly holy before. No, I'm saying that you, if you're a Christian, you take verse 5 seriously. That's all I'm saying. You read verse 5 and you say, hmm, I better do that. God helping me, God enabling me, God giving me all the grace I need, and he will because that's why, that's why Christ died. So God help me. I want to put my sin 
to death. So don't be, don't be deceived. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap ruin. The wages of sin is death. Many will say on that day that knew, that said, but I, 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 I prayed the prayer. I, I, I came to church. I uh, did my best. God, I received Jesus as my Lord. Say, yeah, but you didn't fight your sin. You didn't fight your sin. You never fought your sin. Ever. And he will say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Because that's what they were. And they were claiming to know Jesus in Matthew 7. We know you. We did things for you. He said, but you lived a life that was characterized by sin. So you're fundamentally practicing sin every day of your life. You're not preoccupied with heaven. You're not striving to pursue the Lord. You're not trying to put your sin to death. You're not preoccupied with being raised and seated and glorified with Christ. Remember what Jesus said to the woman? Did he say when he was talking about the woman that was brought forward who was supposed to be condemned by the Pharisees and they asked to pick up stones and all that? Did he say to her, did anybody condemn you? She says, no, Lord. He says, well, then neither I do, do, uh, do I condemn you. Go and sin less. Just go and sin less. You know, just try not to do it as much as you did, you know, when you were living in it. No, he says, go and sin no more. No more. Make that your goal. Make that your goal. So why do I say all this? And I say this for this reason. Warnings are gift of God's mercy to us, brothers and sisters. Is Who loves you the most? The person who says, get off the tracks, or the person who says, I just let the train hit them? The person who loves you the most is saying, look, this is what God says. Warnings are active. A good parent will warn his son or daughter. And the Spirit uses warnings from his word to keep us fearing God and turning from sin. That's what we have this morning. This is a loving father saying, kids, sit down. We got something serious to talk about here. I want to talk to you about your sexual and your social life. And I want you to make sure that you're putting this stuff to death because God's children don't live this way. Prove to me that you're God's child. That's all it is. You're not earning anything. You're proving. You're proving that you're God's child. So what he says here is, let's prove it. Let's prove it, church. Let's prove that we are who we say we are by putting our sin to death, that Jesus really has changed and transformed us. Lastly, and very quickly, number three, godly restoration. Verse nine, second half. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. What Larry reminded us of right before he read. We've already put it off. It's not us anymore. And we've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in and all. In other words, he's saying the things that would typically define us, our Greekness, our Jew, who our culture is, what our social standing is, you know, the things that the world defines themselves by, we don't define ourselves by. You know who we define ourselves by? Christ. Christ is all, and Christ is in all. And that's how we are to relate to each other in the church. Christ is all among these people, among us as a people, and Christ is in all of us as his people. And so we relate to each other as we would re relate to Christ. So here's the big idea, and let me conclude with this. Here's the question to ask yourself. What you're doing right now, are you going to be doing that in the kingdom of God on the last day? Lust, covetousness, anger, temper, tongue, slander, malice. You're going to be doing that? In the kingdom of God, boyfriends and girlfriends don't rent apartments or watch people engage in sex on phone screens. That doesn't happen. It's not going to be in heaven. In the kingdom of God, people aren't jealous of what other people have. In the kingdom of God, people don't say things behind other people's back that they wouldn't say to their face. In the kingdom of God, people don't break out in rage and shred people to death with their words. That doesn't happen in the kingdom of God. 
And since it won't be like that in the kingdom, stop doing it now. That's Paul's point. If you won't be doing it there, don't do it here. Because that's not normal, right, or forever. What's not normal, right, or forever, according to God's definition, should be put to death now. Because it's not making it in there. You won't stand before the Lord Jesus and, and he says, bring it in here. If he won't say to you when you stand before him, bring it in here, then don't do it now. Has everybody got that? If, it's not gonna, if, he's not, if you're not bringing it with you into heaven, don't get, get rid of it now. Get rid of it now. The point is, you're going to stop doing it one day. You might as well start today. <laughs> you're going to stop lying one day. You're going to stop being lustful one day. You're going to stop being angry sinfully one day. So stop now. Stop now. We will be perfect. No more sin in the kingdom. No suffering. No shame. Who we are today is not the ultimate real us. The ultimate real us is us without sin, glorified, raised with Christ, seated with him in heavenly places. That's the eternal us. That's the you we're becoming. So that's what we need to think about. What is the kingdom like now, and who will I be in the kingdom? The real, true, eternal you is the you that you are becoming, and that's the you you need to become now, strive to become. You say, I used to be lustful, impure, passionate, evil, covetous, idolatrous, angry, wrathful, malicious, slanderous, obscene liar. That's who I was, but that's not who I am anymore. That's a part of the old me that died with Jesus. Those are, to use John 11 as an illustration, with Lazarus coming out, those are the grave clothes that I'm still wearing. Christ has raised you from the dead. you still got some grave clothes on. And you need to get rid of the grave clothes. And the grave clothes are sexual and social sin, at least described, as described here. Instead of wearing them all day, every day, I'm going to leave them in the tomb where they belong. Let's strive to do that, brothers and sisters. Let's strive to leave our clothes, our grave clothes, in the tomb where they belong because that's where they are. And that's where they're staying. That's where they're staying. Let me conclude with an illustration. Worship team, you can come forward. I thought I came across this in reading a book recently uh, by Ranton Kilt Wilborn. Strange name, hard to pronounce. He wrote a book on union with Christ where he describes what it's like to ride a bicycle when you're growing up with your dad. And this is the way I want you to think about your growing in holiness. Let me read Rankin's words, and I'll close with this. He says, I recently taught my son Jack how to ride a bicycle. He was terrified. At first, he kept turning around to make sure that I was right there beside him. But you can't move forward if you're always anxiously checking behind you. When Jack was able to hear my voice, I've got you. I've got you, buddy. And he could trust that I was right there. Then he was able to move forward in confidence. Dad's got me. One of the reasons why holiness is so scary or unattractive for us is that we see it as a bar we can never reach or yet another thing we failed to do. We do fail. We fall. And when we do, we fear that God is disappointed in us, that he is scowling. So we want to pull away from him and hide. And I hope and I pray and I have prayed that that is not your response to what I've told, told you this morning. Rather, that you feel loved by God in what he's done for you. And you feel loved by God in the way he speaks as a father and warns you. He goes on to say, how can we remember dad's got me? What reminds you that he, that he is right there with you? That his affection for you does not change when you fall off your bike. If anything, it grows warmer as he rushes to you in compassion well, why did I want Jack to learn how to ride his bike? Not only so that he can one day deliver newspapers and start paying rent, but also so he can know the joy of feeling the wind in his hair and so we can ride our bikes together. His little legs can't keep up with me when we walk or run, but on wheels, my son and I can experience more life together and enjoy each other's company. We can ride to the ocean. God wants us to grow in holiness, not as some sort of test or punishment, 
not even just as preparation for the future, but because he wants us to enjoy life with him more. The more we grow in holiness, the more we can enjoy his presence. He wants us not simply to press on, but to soar. He wants holiness for us, for our joy. Now my child can ride with me. When you fall, God rushes to you in love and cares for you. But because he loves you, he doesn't want you to keep falling. Once we understand holiness in light of our union with Christ, it becomes beautiful to us. We see that God is making us beautiful because he's making us like him. And he is committed to us over the course of the whole journey. I've got you. You'll get there. Just pedal. Let's pray. Father, may we pedal. Help us to pedal, knowing that we're going to get there. You have rescued us. You have saved us. You have delivered us. Help us to pedal. Inspired by all the hope and all the warning that this passage gives us. All the positive and all the painful. Help us to be wooed out of our restlessness and out of our indifference and strengthened again for the fight of faith. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and worship. Thank you, Pastor Mark, for that uh, very helpful and practical sermon, for your preparation and your prayers that went into it. I don't know if you realize, folks, I don't fully realize how, um, in one sense, theological that sermon was. It was certainly exegetical. He took out of the passage the truths that we need to understand and apply. But the balance of this matter of having our hope and trust and confidence in him and yet seeing the need for us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Tremendous balance, and, and I hope that God will pursue all of that in our lives and change us, change us individually and change this church corporately because of what we heard this morning. Just a couple of quick announcements. Uh, copies of our 2018 budget are in the lobby. They're on the check-in desk for members. If you have any questions, please direct them to the finance team. We'd like to have 
another one of those meetings that we've had so many times now in a row where everyone pretty much has their questions answers and we answered and we can proceed to uh, adopt that budget for the new year. So secondly, we have um, on that family meeting also, we're going to be voting on the two um, elder elects of the two candidates for the office, um, Keith Withrow and Thad Gunderson. Hopefully that night, this church will suddenly move from three pastors to five, from three elders to five. This Wednesday night, the meal is soup. Five different soups are going to be served with sandwiches, crackers, and so forth. Please sign up in the lobby. That's very helpful to them. The nursery needs seven people, seven people, would you be one of them, to sign up to help in 2018. Please see Chris Houston. That's a ministry. It's a critical ministry. The quarterly fellowship meals team needs two people to help. We're so thankful for Brandon's leadership in that. Please see Brandon if you're willing to be one of those two people. And then finally, once again, Jim announced this, but just to reiterate, the men's retreat is next Friday night. Please see Jim so we know how much food to purchase. We want to assure the wives it will be healthy food. And we expect, I don't, I don't like that they put that in quotation marks. <laughs> Um, they put uh, healthy food and we expect the men to eat healthy portions of it so we're going to have a great time hope you guys can come and just enjoy brotherly love and affection and the edification that comes from such fellowship I want to leave you with these two words you know we hear them often used that's the way a lot of people part ways and they're great words and I'm not saying that when people just say this that it's really glib it may or may not be they say grace and peace you know, we're saying goodbye. See you later. And grace and peace. Those are wonderful words. And I say them to you this morning. But I say them with the depth of their meaning. Grace. May the unmerited favor of God rest upon you in this week to come. And peace. That inward sense of all is well. Because I am God's and he is mine. So, dear brothers and sisters, and remember, if you're not a brother or a sister, this is not a benediction for you. It just doesn't belong to you. But if you know Jesus Christ, it belongs to you. So, brothers and sisters, grace and peace be with you. You are dismissed.